0: Last week, we talked about a familiar friend, a well-known verse of Scripture, and this morning, we're going to do that again, another familiar friend, and it's a verse that's just chock full of hope and victory, and it goes like this. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this offer from Jesus to forgive and to remove our guilt is just this beautiful gift. But having said that, and what I want to focus on today is the difference that there is between the ideas of guilt and shame. But before we do that, let me pray with you. Father, as we look now into your word, we just invite you to be the one who heals the brokenhearted, the one who removes these ideas and these truths and these unfortunate truths of guilt and shame. And we understand and we claim that these things are only available through the cross of Christ. And so, Lord, as we consider this, we invite you to speak as only you can in power and in healing ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in this series of messages called I'm In But, and the premise or the big idea is is that I, you know, I can articulate accurate theology. I can say I believe there's a God. I can even have a, a time in my life where I bowed the knee and I received Jesus as the Savior of my life. He forgave my sins. He's the Lord of my life. And uh, I have a relationship with God, but... In practical terms, in areas or an area of my life, I say to God, that's off limits. So in other words, I'm in, but. I'm in, but. And even though I enjoy the grace of Christ, I'm holding back in this one place. Don't mess with that one or maybe perhaps several areas of my life. Craig Groeschel would describe this as, a, as, as being a practical Christian atheist in that area or areas of my life. We're seeking to address that in this series, and today we're going to look at the idea of I'm in, but I'm ashamed. I'm in, but I'm ashamed. And we're going to look at how there's a difference between guilt and shame, and how are these things addressed in our life. My dad um, is 81 years old. When he was growing up, and even to a certain extent still, incredibly athletic, much more than I would ever hope to be. He was a jock, you know, the the captain of the football team, he played junior football um, for the Rams, he was heading towards junior A hockey, and he could skate like the wind. And he had a, quite a devastating injury to his shoulder, which kind of stopped those things. But he still could skate like the wind. I remember as a kid, when he was in his 30s, he could skate rings around the 18 and 19-year-olds. And even well into his 70s, he could just blaze down the rink. It was incredible to see. I've seen him do it. And so growing up, I wanted to emulate him and his abilities athletically. And at the age of five and six, I can remember dreaming of being very successful as an athlete, even though I was a shadow of his ability all through my life. And I thought about winning trophies and, you know, sort of being the hero. And in my normal um, non-patient way, when that really wasn't happening by the age of eight, I was frustrated. And one day, Uh, Our family was invited to the home of this elderly gentleman in Regina. His wife had passed away, and he was incredibly wealthy. And he had one of the largest uh, homes in the city of Regina, a mansion by any estimation, right across on Albert Street, right across the street from the provincial legislature, this majestic home. I don't remember if it was three or four stories high, but I was exploring the house by myself, everybody was down on one of the lower levels, and I was on the third floor of the house, and it, this third floor of the house was just one big majestic room, and I would guess, if I had to guess, it was probably be about 2,000 square feet on one floor, one big room, and it was the billiard room, not the, not the pool room, the billiard room, and it was all hardwood. All dark woods all the way around the entire room. And in the middle of the table was the biggest billiard table you could buy. And there was racks and racks of, of, of sticks, And all around the room there was these huge, very expensive leather chairs. And the men would sit and smoke cigars and they would play billiards. And all on the the, the walls all around, I was up there by myself, all the way around were the the trophy heads of animals that he'd shot all over the world on safari and in northern Canada. And there was a large bar in there, this solid mahogany bar, and rows and rows of alcohol. And on one end of the room, there was a trophy case the entire length of the room, uh, you know, right beside the door. And it was full of trophies. And I came up with this bright idea at age eight. I thought, he'll never miss one of those trophies. And think of how impressive I will be with one of those. And again, I didn't really think this through too carefully. But what I did is I stole one of them. And I took it downstairs. And I hid it at the front entrance of this house. Great big front entrance entrance. And when it was time to leave, I was sweating bullets as I thought, how am I going to get out there? But I was quite sneaky and I managed to smuggle it out to the car, but of course, I got caught. And so like all good parents, they invited me to go back inside, return the item, confess what I'd done and why, and there was various other repercussions that were applied later. And uh, that night... As I was laying on my bed, I remember for the first time in my life, I experienced genuine shame. Overwhelming shame. And here, here's this thing. I had no idea what to do with it. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I wasn't a Christian. I had no idea what to do with the guilt of my action, and the shame that attached to my life. Now, the interesting thing about this is that I went to church. Like, my family was a very religious family, very moral family. And so, um, we went to church every week. And you know that you can go to church every week and be very religious and not have a relationship with God. You know that, right? The Bible's very clear about that. It's never about what we do, but about what Christ did for us. And I was overwhelmed with shame, not only guilt, but shame for what I'd done for myself personally as a person, but also for the shame I'd brought on my family, which was a big deal to me and to us. And it wasn't that I had just done something bad, something that I had remorse for, something that I had guilt for. But in my mind, I was bad. And I had brought this shame on myself. Guilt and shame, either one of those left unchecked in our life, can cripple us. And in my own life, and then as many years as a pastor, I've come across a lot of people who are dying a slow, agonizing death because of guilt. Shame. And there are some people here this morning who are wrestling with the guilt of a specific act that you have done that has never been repented of and never been confessed. Maybe you stole something like me. Maybe you're a liar. Maybe you're a gossip. Maybe you've engaged in some sexual sin, whatever it is. And then there are some here that are struggling with a false guilt. Not a legitimate guilt, a false guilt, because somebody has perpetrated a trauma or an abuse or something inappropriate on you. And it wasn't your fault at all, but you were hurt deeply by that. Guilt is a feeling of remorse about something specific that I've done. Shame is feeling bad about who I am. My daughter, who is a pastor, she's on staff at Stetler Alliance Church, she's actually preaching this morning herself, articulates it this way. Listen to what she says. She says, guilt is something from God that convicts us of our sin and behavior. It points us to repentance and to grace and to forgiveness. Shame is something from Satan that attacks our identity and who we are in Christ. I'm a bad person. That's shame. Guilt can be removed because of the cross of Christ, because uh, the grace that he purchased for us comes and, and is applied, and that act, when we repent of it, we're forgiven and we're cleansed. But shame can linger. And this shame can make us think that it's this great lie that recovery is impossible, that in fact we don't even deserve to recover. This is one of the great lies of the evil one. In fact, just recently talking with a couple people from our church who have not yet come to faith in this great obstacle, is this belief that God cannot forgive their sin, and even though they don't know perhaps how to articulate it, the shame that's attached to that as well. And they can't forgive themselves, and they can't imagine how God could forgive themselves, forgive them either. Listen to the promise from God again. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God promises a way out of this nasty cycle. And it's rooted entirely in the grace of God purchased for us by Christ on the cross. Think of the story of Peter. If you know the story of Peter... Peter is one of the leaders in the early church, but it didn't just start out that way. He was selected by Jesus to be one of the 12, one of the, his leadership team that he was going to use to change the world, but he was also part of the inner three. There was a core of three, a group of 12, a larger group of 70, and then an even larger group of 120. Peter was the spokesman for all of them. Uh, uh, maybe just that he had the biggest mouth, I don't know, but he was one of the inner three. And he would often make proclamations, and he would say, he said one time, he said, no, Jesus, no matter what happens, I'm in with you. Like, even if we go to jail or if we suffer or we die, I'm, I'm down with you. And Jesus said to him, uh, before the cock crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, I'd never do that, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, we all know that that night they came to arrest Jesus. And in Luke 22, the story is told, Peter, along with the other disciples, abandons Jesus. But Peter trails after the group as they're carting Jesus off to the mock, I think it was six mock trials. They put him through through the course of the night. They pay people off to lie about him, all that kind of stuff. Peter follows along behind watching and listening. And three times he's confronted during the night that he is one of the Jesus people. And he denies Jesus each time. And there's this triple failure. Have you ever failed to stand for God? I, I have. I have. And at that moment, for Peter and for me, there's a choice. Does Peter believe the lie that, yes, he's failed... But it's so bad this failure that there's no hope for him, that there's no forgiveness. Did he believe that lie? Did I believe that lie? Well, Peter chooses not to believe the lie. Uh, now he, he has to repent and he has to face the consequences of his sinful denial of Christ. And you know what the how it all started was one look from Jesus. He looked the cock crows after he's denied him the third time, Jesus looks across the courtyard, sees him, and he realizes the prophetic word that Jesus has spoken over him, he actually did it. And there's brokenness, and there's tears for Peter, and there's repentance, and there's remorse, and there's crying out to God for forgiveness. And then later, as you read the story, Jesus comes and restores him. So there's forgiveness of the guilt, but then Jesus removes the shame that he wants to do, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to be prayed for that way later in this service. And so Jesus not only forgave him, but he removed the shame. And I have a sense that that sounds very inviting To many of you. And so grace can be applied and and guilt can be removed and forgiven. But shame can linger. David writes about shame. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 25. It's right in the middle of your Bible, the book of Psalms. Psalm 25. And he writes, I'm going to read about 13 or 14 verses in there. Psalm 25, and David is writing, and I'm going to read first of all verses 1 to 11. He says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Then let's jump over to verse 16. Turn to me, David says, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. See, this is what shame does. It isolates us from God and from others. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. And then verse 20. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. See, unless we give God sort of an all-access pass to our inner lives... All we do in life is try to manage the symptoms of our sinful choices. Let me say that again. Unless we give God sort of this all-access pass to our inner life, all we're doing in life is trying to rearrange the deck chairs to manage the symptoms and the outcomes of the sin in our life. So in the first two verses, David mentions the word shame three times. Forty-six times he mentions it in the Psalms. And the root of shame comes from the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3 there. And in in chapter 3, we read that Adam and Eve make this choice to rebel against God. They say, you know, "I, I know God created all this. I know He is God. But I don't want Him to be the God of my life. I want to be the God of my life. And so they make a choice to rebel against God's authority and God's place in their life. And at the moment they do that, their eyes are opened. And the first thing they do is run and hide. And shame is the first emotion they have. They have shame before they begin to blame each other later in the chapter. Or, or in chapter 4 where there's jealousy and anger and murder. Before any of those things, there's shame. So they, they try and hide from God and they make fig leaves to cover themselves. And so for them it originates in sinful choices. But it can also come shame from, as I referenced earlier, from traumatic things that others have done to us where it was not our fault, where maybe we've been discriminated against because of our ethnicity or our gender, or we've been abused in some way or neglected in some way or discriminated against because of our economic status in life and people, or people have neglected us physically or, or hurt us emotionally or sexually. And none of these things, these perpetrations against us, are part of God's design. And what shame does, just like it did for Adam and Eve, is it it invites us to run away from God and from others. And this is why David says this, I feel this alienation and this loneliness. And the more shame I experience in life, the less intimacy I can experience with God and with others. And my identity about who I am in Christ is being assaulted. When, I'm, when shame is lingering in my life, in all the while, there's this cry in our heart. And it's, it's sort of paradoxical because we receive all of Jesus when we receive him as Savior and Lord. And yet, he wants to touch us. And we long for his healing touch. We long for him to remove that shame. That's lingering. And we understand intrinsically that the freedom is only found in Christ. It's not in somebody's words. It's not in anybody's actions. It's found in the cross of Christ alone. Remember what my daughter said. It's absolutely true. Guilt is something from God that convicts us of our sin and behavior. It points us to repentance. It points us to grace. It points us to forgiveness. It's a good thing. Shame is something from Satan that attacks our identity of who we are in Christ. So how do we address this? The first thing David says in verses 8 to 10 is he says it begins with humility. Let me read this to you. Verses 8 to 10. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his way. He guides the humble. In what is right, and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Humility, very simply, is just viewing ourselves as God views us, not any better or any worse than God views us in Christ. Here's a little secret too God views us better than most of us view ourselves. Remember, he doesn't view us based, and he doesn't love us based, we talked about this last week, he does not view us, he does not love us based on what we've done or not done. God loves us perfectly, simply because he's chosen to, and this is his nature. God views us better than often, most often, views us better than we view ourselves, because he sees us in Christ. And so it begins with humility and just that, ability, just that willingness to say, God, I'm giving you an all-access pass to clean the inside of me in order to bring this freedom. And I guess the question I would have for you is, uh, do you long for that? Are you willing for that? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow five questions from my friend Doug Balzer. And this is one of those moments where, where, you, where you kind of address this idea, I'm in, but. I'm in, but I can see Dixon is starting to get real personal with me. The Spirit of God is, is talking to me about some stuff. And it's one of those I'm in, but moments. And so at the end here, in just a couple of minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to do just what David said, just to humble yourself. And I'm going to invite you to stand, and I want to pray for you. And you know who the very first person to stand is, is going to be? It's going to be me. I did this in the first service, but see, our God is big enough that he, he doesn't get constrained by things like two services and our limited ability to understand things. He's bigger than us. And so the first person to stand, the first person that needs to be prayed for in this way is me. And I'm going to invite you to stand and allow me to pray some just declarative prayers of healing over you. And they'll be about things that I have done or you have done or other things that others have done to us where we didn't do anything wrong at all. We didn't deserve that, it wasn't part of God's plan, but but these things were perpetrated on us. And some of us that will stand may still have some unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with, and you absolutely need to do that. Take that to the cross, repent of it, and ask God to forgive you. And that forgiveness, having said that, maybe you've already done that, but the shame is still lingering. That's attacking your identity in Christ. So listen to these questions, which are really steps to freedom out of that shame. The first one David just suggested in verse 1 Do I believe God is trustworthy? Do I actually believe this? Or is it, I'm in, but I don't know if I really can trust him. So he says this in verse 1. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. and you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Do I actually believe God is trustworthy? It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Are we willing to give that all excess pass to that part of our soul that maybe we've never really given him access to? Because we're kind of afraid of what might happen if we cracked open that door. Second question. Am I willing to say sort of quote-unquote, X is true of me? In other words, I'm not prettying myself up. I'm not putting, you know, I'm not sort of varnishing up the truth so it looks better than it is. I'm not trying to make myself more palatable in God's sight. I'm just owning my stuff. And so that might involve confession, but it also, as I've already said, if the confession is already done um, and the guilt is gone, but the shame voice is still there, that I'm just saying by by standing and asking somebody to pray for me, I'm just saying, God, that's true of me. I have this shame voice in my life, and it might have been because of sinful choices, or it might have been because of other things, uh, people that have done wrong things to me. David talks about this in verse 18. He says, he says to God, look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. So He's just honest with God. He doesn't try to pretty it up. He just says, I'm willing to say this is actually true of me. Thirdly, will I invite Jesus to lead me to his pathway? Because really, again, it's just allowing Jesus to lead us. On the path. He says this in verses 4 and 5. David says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, and teach me, for you are God my Savior. See, he already has a relationship with God, and he's saying, would you guide me? Would you, and my hope is in you all day long. And it's just about allowing Jesus to have that access? Because you're saying, uh, you know, I know I have this relationship with you, but I just don't know the path forward here. I don't know how to, how to navigate this. I don't know what the real root issues that express themselves and the symptoms, um, I don't know what they are inside me. So would you, do, would you deal with that, God? Fourth question, will I embrace the exchange of shame for honor? See, that's what Jesus offers. He says, I will exchange the shame you feel for the honor that you will have when you're one of my children. It says, well-known verses, Romans chapter 12, listen to these verses. Therefore, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Listen to this next phrase, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, one of the many things that Jesus dealt with on your behalf at the cross was shame. That's one of the things he dealt with. Isaiah the prophet Listen to this promise from God. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. See, Jesus has purchased this inheritance for you. We talked about this last week, that we are co-heirs. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. Last question will i submit to his work of renewing my mind well known idea from romans 12 will i cooperate with god sort of in a sense rewiring my brain the ways i think about myself and the the will i renounce those unbiblical thoughts i have about who i am and and how god sees me so what i'm going to encourage you to do now and remember, I'm the first one, because I need this. Is in just a moment, I'm going to just encourage you to stand. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to ask you to articulate what the deal is. That's just between you and God. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a declarative prayer over you. Not a demanding prayer, because God's in charge, not me. He's the one that does all this. And it's just a healing, declarative prayer, just to remove this shame from your life so that you can continue to live as a child of the King as God really intends. And so if you'd like me to pray on your behalf like that, it begins by saying, help God. And I invite you to just stand if you'd like me to pray for you like that right now. Let's pray together. So kind Father, we bow in your presence and we choose to embrace the honor given to us by Jesus Christ through his work on the cross where he carried and defeated the power of shame in our life. And so in Jesus' name, I rebuke and I resist the root of shame and we choose to embrace our new identity as a child of God, co with Christ, loved by our Heavenly Father. I ask you Jesus to chase the spirit of shame out of our lives to displace it instead with more of your presence. Jesus, I give you access to the deep and still broken places in my soul, and I invite you to heal me, to lead me along righteous paths, to grant me wisdom and understanding so that we would know you better. Teach us to think according to your thoughts, to love ourselves as you love us, and to love others as, as we love ourselves then as scripture says we thank you Jesus for loving us while we were still sinners or before we could even begin to love ourselves appropriately and now I just pray Holy Spirit that you would come that you would pour out upon your people here that you would appropriate the victory of Jesus in the lives of these people would your warring angels just be released to do spiritual battle to set captives free in the room right now I pray for everyone who desires that shame would be broken. And I would say, shame get out of our lives because of Christ. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Be gone now. For those that are standing or perhaps it's just too tough to uh, to stand, I just pray for those that have suffered sexual or physical or any kind of abuse like that, that they would be free from the effects of that. I call any schemes of the enemy to attention who war against the souls of God's people. And I call out and demand that you remove those illegitimate access points because you are a defeated foe in Jesus' name. I declare those grounds as illegitimate and that the light of God shines on them and that all angels of agents of the enemy that are attached to those entry points, I bind you in Jesus' name. And I say, let go of God's people now. I pray in Jesus' name that you get out of their lives. And in Jesus' name, I pray that healing is released in this room right now. I pray that there's healing of memories. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation comes and that you will bring spirit, wisdom, and revelation where it's needed to help with the painful memories, and where there is pain in these roots, I pray, Spirit of God, just release the honor that Christ has purchased for each person here. In fact, I pray like Isaiah that you would release a double portion of honor in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, because like it says in verse 7 and 8 there of Psalm 25, you are good. You are good. And we love every touch from you, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things now in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated.